Welcome to Leading from Behind, a podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number 16, Variations in Follow-Up Sessions. Well, thank you for joining me here on Leading from Behind. In this episode, we'll return to our discussion of follow-up sessions. This time, we'll be looking at the solution-focused practitioner's position when the client returns and reports something other than just improvements since the previous session. As well, in the concluding resource segment of the podcast, I'll identify two downloadable articles on the web that might be of interest to you. The first relates specifically to follow-up sessions, while the second is a recently updated document devoted to solution-focused practice in general. So, welcome to the program. I hope you'll find it useful in your understanding of solution-focused practice. Ideally, people would return following a first session in solution-focused therapy and report only significant positive change in their circumstances. If this was the case, follow-up sessions would be fairly well-structured. We would elicit, amplify, and reinforce these changes, ask, if necessary, about the next small signs of change, and then complete the session with a message of direct compliments and encouragement. But of course, this isn't how all of our follow-up sessions unfold, although I'll say again that it certainly does happen when using a solution-focused approach. In reality, though, there are certainly many variations in what clients report when they return for a follow-up session. In addition to improvements, they might also report setbacks or areas of their lives that have remained unchanged. In some instances, it could be one or the other, and in other instances, any combination of improvement, setbacks, and the status quo. To complicate matters, it's also possible that what was important to the client in the first session is no longer most important. Either one particular aspect of life reported in the first session now takes precedence, or perhaps something new entirely is of greater importance. As a result of these many variations, follow-up sessions in solution-focused therapy can sometimes be challenging for new practitioners in comparison to first sessions. However, with time, practice, and an understanding of how we engage with these variations, a sense of confidence and competence in solution-focused conversations can certainly be achieved. So in this episode, we'll take a closer look at some of the questions and positions taken during follow-up sessions when clients return with some of these variations. Once again, we'll be using our ongoing case example as a means of illustration. Now, as a place to begin, I'd like to reiterate the solution-focused assumption that change is constant and inevitable in people's lives. This is reflected in how we begin subsequent sessions with the question, what's better? But it's also illustrated in several other ways during our conversations with clients. First, it's often reflected in the patience and tenacity that we demonstrate in inviting clients to identify improvements that might not otherwise be located. And secondly, it's also found in our efforts to uncover exceptions to problems since the previous session. In a follow-up session, it's very common for clients to immediately locate problems or setbacks as a place to begin the conversation, even when the initial question is focused on what's better. 
This is hardly surprising in a problem-focused world where depictions of talk therapy almost always reflect this. As a result, the solution-focused therapist may need to slow the client down, if you will, as a means of maintaining a solution-building position. Now, of course, we want to do this respectfully and in a way that still recognizes what might be most important to the client. So let's return then to our ongoing example with our client, Rachel. In our previous episode, episode 15, we highlighted the conversation where the exclusive focus was on what's better. In this instance, the entire conversation was focused there, as Rachel's own focus was on discussing the improvements that had occurred since the first session. In this new example, however, Rachel responds to the question, what's better, in a slightly different manner. So, Rachel, what's been better since we spoke last? Well, I think some things have been a bit better, but some things have been worse, especially at work. So, Rachel acknowledges that some things have been better, but it's also clear that some things, particularly at work, are worse. Now, as the solution-focused practitioner, I'd like to maintain a focus on what's better, rather than going directly into problem talk. I want to do this given my understanding of Rachel's best hopes from our conversation in the first session. That is, for her to return to the level of well-being that she was at prior to her miscarriage and ensuing health problems. I also want to do this because my natural curiosity about what's better is certainly stronger than my curiosity about problems. And at the same time, I want to be respectful of the possibility that what's important to Rachel today may have changed. So, as a result, I ask her the following. Okay, and so can we start with some of the things that have been a little bit better? Sure. So, with Rachel's agreement, I would then go on to elicit, amplify, and reinforce the improvements in these other aspects of her life, as outlined in our previous episode. Following this discussion of what's better, then, it would be important to go back to her comments about what's been worse since the previous session. So you mentioned, Rachel, that some things have been worse since we we met last. Yeah, I mean, Alex and I were doing okay for a bit, and then things kind of blew up. But we came to some agreement on some things, so it's better now. So Rachel first identifies something, in this case, her relationship with her partner Alex, that became worse, but then improved. As a solution-focused therapist, then, I want to shine a light on what worked, what helped, and the difference this made in moving this aspect of her life from worse to better. And how did you manage to do that? Well, we were doing fine, but Alex still didn't seem like he was committed to us getting pregnant again, even though he said he was. Anyway, I guess I got really upset about it, and we ended up having a few difficult days, that's for sure. And so what helped to resolve those difficult days? Well, we finally just sat down and talked about it, and Alex finally admitted that he was really feeling pressured, you know, for us to get pregnant right away. I mean, I didn't know that, because he didn't tell me. So it's hard to do something different if you don't know. Exactly. But when we talked and he admitted that he felt pressured, I guess I realized that I was also putting a lot of pressure on myself, you know? So it was kind of a relief just to decide to let things happen, you know, naturally. And what difference has that made for you? Uh, Big difference. Really, it's just made it a lot easier for both of us to just relax with each other. 
So how were you able to do this, to find some resolution with Alex in, in a way that seems to have helped both of you? I, I don't know. I guess I just had to look at the bigger picture rather than being so single-minded, you know? In particular, note the use of the following questions during this part of the conversation. How did you manage to do that? What helped? What difference did that make? And how were you able to do this? Each of these questions, in their own way, are meant to tap into Rachel's expertise in navigating through something that went from worse to better. For the most part, each of these questions is also focused on what Rachel did, rather than what her partner did. As well, the questions reflect a position of curiosity and not knowing. Now, in this conversation with Rachel, she goes on to say more about her work situation, something that's clearly worse since the previous session. Well, I try to have another conversation with my supervisor about getting some of my responsibilities back, but she just wouldn't listen to my side of things. Instead, she keeps going on about giving my coworker a chance to learn this part of the job. But I know it's because they have a closer relationship with each other and they socialize even outside of work. Anyways, ever since then, she's been picking out small mistakes or being critical of some of the things that she's never even mentioned before. So when something is clearly worse in a follow-up session, we still want to maintain a solution-building stance. In this instance, I begin by asking Rachel some of the same types of questions mentioned earlier, although in this instance, the intention is to highlight what Rachel's doing to cope with this worsening problem. So, Rachel, how have you managed with this? What's helped even just a little bit? Well, talking with some of my coworkers help. I mean, they can see what's going on. But I don't want to do that too much because it just feels like, you know, I'm complaining all the time. And what else helps? Talking with Alex about it helps. I mean, he's been really supportive. He thinks I should start looking for a new job. And you? No, I'm not ready to do that yet. I mean, I've always liked my job, so it just doesn't seem fair. But I guess it might be something I'll have to do, but not yet. As noted in previous episodes, whether it's uncovering details of the client's preferred future or learning more about what's better, asking what else is a good way of ensuring that we've tapped into a fuller description of the client's expertise and knowledge. So, I continued to ask about other things that have helped her to cope with her work situation. And what else helps, even a little? Well, going to the gym at lunch and spending time with my friends, and Alex seems to help. And, and how do those things help as far as work is concerned? I don't know. I guess it just keeps me focused on other things, rather than just thinking about work all the time. Now, another useful question that can be asked when some element of what's important to the client has worsened is the following. What have you learned? Or, what have you learned that might be helpful in the days ahead? Again, the purpose of this question is to invite the client's knowledge and expertise about her own life. As well, we can also spend some time asking about exceptions. In Rachel's case, this might be by asking about the times at work when her frustration isn't getting the best of her or her interactions with her manager are more like she would prefer. Now, it's important to note here that sometimes what's worse is indeed the client's primary focus in the session. 
to the extent that any other content from the previous session is no longer important to the client. In these instances, the solution-focused practitioner might simply shift back into first session mode, if you will. In other words, after exploring what's helped and how the client has managed, we might invite the client into a conversation about their preferred future when this particular issue is no longer getting in the way. Again, we might explore exceptions and ask one or more scaling questions that relate to this particular issue. And finally, we might also ask about next small signs of change, again specific to this matter. Now, the decision to do this may depend on one's clinical judgment, but ideally we might do so because the client has identified that the particular subject is their sole interest from the current conversation. So, in our case example, it's possible that Rachel might say that she only wants to talk about her work situation, as the other issues presented in the first session might be satisfactorily resolved or don't have the same level of importance to her. So, as a way of returning to a first session mode, I might further the conversation by asking the same question I asked at the beginning of the first session. So, Rachel, what's your best hope from our conversation about your work situation? I don't know. I don't think my boss is going to change her mind about anything. I guess my best hope is to either find ways of not getting stressed about it. Rachel identifies that her best hope is that she isn't getting stressed out about her work situation. So I would certainly want to spend some time in seeking out some kind of general expression of what she wants instead of being stressed out. And if this was expressed as a desire to find ways of coping with the situation in a healthy manner, I might seek her agreement about this in the following way. So just so that I'm clear, it would be helpful if you were able to identify ways to manage your work situation in a way that's healthy for you. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm really fed up with it. I just want to be able to move on. I've got too much going on to be looking for a new job right now. And of course, from there, we might go on to focus on the issue of work in the first session manner described earlier. Now, before closing our discussion about the variations in the conversation that might occur in follow-up sessions, let's talk a little bit about when the client reports that nothing has changed or that overall his or her circumstances are the same. Again, in keeping with our solution-focused assumptions about change, we want to hold on to the possibility that even when the client reports that something is unchanged overall, there still might be useful change to be discovered nonetheless. So, for example, in these instances, we might ask about exceptions by saying something like, was there one day or part of a day that stood out as being even just a little better? And, of course, if the client identifies something here, we want to be curious by asking what was different on that day or that time. And if the exception included something that the client did or even responded to in some way, we might seek more details by asking questions like, how did you manage to do that? Or what difference did that make? Again, we would be moving back into amplifying and reinforcing the change, even if, overall, the circumstances, in the client's opinion, haven't changed. Of equal importance, in cases where something is reported as being the same or unchanged, we also want to take the position that the client has been doing something that has prevented the situation from being worse. So when a client says, for example, that his mood or a significant relationship remains unchanged since the previous session, we might ask the following. How have you managed to prevent things from being worse? 
or what have you been doing to prevent things from being worse? Or even simply, how come things aren't worse? These questions sometimes invite clients to talk more about what they are doing that's helpful, identify their own unique expertise, and, of course, keep the conversation moving in a solution-building direction. So in closing this discussion of the variations and what clients bring back to follow-up sessions, I'd like to summarize as follows. First, in follow-up sessions, we want to maintain a primary emphasis on what's better. Second, even in the midst of setbacks or elements of the client's life that are reported as unchanged, there's still room for highlighting improvements that might otherwise go unidentified. Third, when there are setbacks or things are reported as unchanged, we want to make use of coping questions as a way of shining a light on the client's strengths, skills, and competence. And finally, in listening to the client and using our own clinical judgment, there are times when the conversation may shift back into a first session mode, where we make a renewed focus on the client's best hopes from the conversation and examine his or her preferred future as it relates to what is now most important to them. Now, in Episode 17, we'll conclude our discussion of follow-up sessions, at least for now. In that episode, we return to look at the use of scaling questions, next signs of change, and the end-of-session message during follow-up sessions. As well, we'll have some concluding thoughts about some of the unique elements of follow-up sessions in solution-focused practice. In the resource segment of today's episode, we have two downloadable articles that might be of interest to you. As always, you can find links to them in the show notes on the Leading From Behind podcast page of the Halifax Brief Therapy Center's website at hbtc.ca. Now, the first article was written by Dr. Harry Corman, a solution-focused psychiatrist, therapist, and trainer based in Malmo, Sweden, who we've mentioned on previous occasions in this podcast. He's made numerous contributions to the continued development of solution-focused therapy. Dr. Corman's article is entitled, The Second Session, and it offers an excellent overview of what solution-focused therapists do in follow-up sessions. Now, to access the article on Dr. Corman's website, go to sikt.nu. Click on the link for SIKT in English, and then the link to Articles English. There, you'll find a number of his articles, including the one entitled, The Second Session. Now, the second notable article can be found on the website of the Solution-Focused Brief Therapy Association at sfbta.org. The article is a recently revised version of the Solution-Focused Treatment Manual for Working with Individuals, which we've mentioned here in the past. The updated document includes new information regarding the evidence base of solution-focused therapy. There's also a new section that outlines how therapeutic activity in solution-focused practice is characterized by a process of listen, select, and build. Now to access this article, simply locate the link in the new section on the left-hand side of the SFBTA homepage and then follow the download link. So we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you again for joining me. Now, if you have comments or questions about this episode or the podcast in general, please feel free to do so on the podcast page of the Halifax Brief Therapy Center website at hbtc.ca or by sending an email to feedback at hbtc.ca. 
As well, if you'd like us to mention a website, book, or upcoming training opportunity in your area relating to solution-focused practice, please let us know, and we'll be happy to report it in the resource section of the podcast. Again, the Leading From Behind podcast is available on or about the 1st and 15th of each month on our website. You can also subscribe to the podcast for free through iTunes. To do so, simply follow the link on the podcast page at hbtc.ca or look for us in the iTunes store in the training subsection of the education category. Finally, I'd like to extend appreciation to my colleague, Debbie Van Horn, for her valuable assistance with our ongoing case example. As usual, thanks as well to Dano at danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under Creative Commons license. So you've been listening to Leading From Behind, a solution-focused therapy podcast, episode number 16. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Centre. I certainly hope you'll join us again. Thank you.